And I think about what Paul said. Paul, Paul, the Apostle Paul talked about how the outward man is perishing, but the inward man is being renewed day by day. There is this reality that we live in a world that is broken. We live in a time of history where we see that brokenness manifesting itself in ever, what it feels like ever-increasing ways. We, we live in a time where we just were aware, even with all the, the great progress we've made when it comes to medicine and knowledge, we still feel our brokenness in a very real way. We feel it culturally, we feel it as a society, we feel it personally, this brokenness, this deterioration. And it's hard. It can be discouraging at times. And we wonder, can what's been broken, can what's been deteriorated, can that be restored? And that's very similar to what's going on at the time that Nehemiah collects these words. Actually, as we're going to say, as Ezra collects these words. That this is a time in Israel's history where things are difficult, where they have this promise from God that there's going to be a restoration. They're going to come back to the city of Jerusalem, but they're wondering, is it going to actually happen? And so what I want to talk to you about today is the fact that there is a hope of restoration, and that hope begins in recognizing how broken things are around us. So we pick it up in verse 1, and, and the book starts off by saying, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now we're going to talk about what Nehemiah's name means and his, dad name, his dad's name means at the end because they're significant. But it's interesting that it identifies Nehemiah, partly because... There's another Nehemiah named later on in the book, and so this is to make a distinction of what Nehemiah they're talking about. But we read this, and it's easy to assume, okay, this is the book written by Nehemiah. But here's what we know. We know in the Hebrew Bible that Ezra, the book that comes before Nehemiah, and Nehemiah are actually one book. In fact, for, for centuries, they called Nehemiah actually second Ezra. So it was probably Ezra who wrote these things down. It was Ezra who wrote down the things from that he wrote in the book of Ezra, but also the things from Nehemiah. He probably took Nehemiah's records, possibly the records that Nehemiah wrote for, for the Persian historical records because he was connected to the Persian Empire. That's just the Holy Spirit, don't worry. <laughs> and so it's important for us to see this, that even though this is going to be Nehemiah's story, there's a lot of personal story here. This is really Ezra's book. Ezra's the one writing this history. So, so what's going on in Ezra connects to what's going on here in the book of Nehemiah. And so really what Nehemiah does is he kind of fills in the gaps. In fact, it's interesting, in, in chapters 8 through 10, we see that it goes from being written in the first person, like Nehemiah saying, I saw this and I did this, to being written in the third person where someone says, and then Nehemiah did this and then this thing happened. And so we get this idea that 8 through 10 is probably Ezra writing stuff down, and the other chapters are, uh, are basically Ezra taking what Nehemiah has written down. Now we also know that when it says that he was in Shushan, or some of your translations say Susa, the citadel, what this was, was the winter uh, palace for the Persian Empire. This is the kind of place that they lived, the kings and the, the leaders of, of Persia the Medo-Persian Empire, they were there in this place called Susa. We'll show you a map in a couple weeks, but this is where they were. 
And what he was, he was a cupbearer. He had this important responsibility of basically tasting the food for the king. Now, this, the reason they would do this, of course, if you taste the food, then if the food's poison, you die and the king doesn't. But don't think this as a throwaway position. It was a very trusted position. If you were the king's cupbearer, if you were someone who tasted the food, drank the wine first to make sure it wasn't poisoned, then the king knew, I can trust this person, and often was asked for advice. And so here's Nehemiah, who's a Hebrew, and yet he has this position of influence with the king of Persia. And so he's, it says that he's, he's writing these things at this time, in fact, when he says the 20th year, it's the 20th year from the time that this particular Persian king came to power. Now, I want you guys to, to understand something. I want to kind of give you some background to know where we are in, the, in, the, in a sense of the history of Israel. If you're familiar with Scripture, you probably know some of this stuff, but if you're not or you, you forget where this stuff all fits, it's important to see where this fits because where, what's happened in Nehemiah, where it fits in the history of Israel has a massive impact in how we interpret what's actually going on and how we apply it to us. So I got some charts for you, some graphs. Some of you guys love graphs, some of you guys hate graphs, but here we go. Now, if you remember about Israel, Israel starts before Israel, a guy named Abram. Abram's uh, worshiping the moon god in Ur, and he and his wife Sarai have no children, which is a big difficulty in their day, in their culture. And God, the creator God, interrupts Abram's life and says, I want to make a promise to you that through you will be many nations born, there'll be uh, or many people born, and you will be a blessing to all nations. And Abraham believes God. Abram believes God. Eventually, God changes his name to Abraham. Eventually, like some 25 years later, he gets the, the promised son. And eventually, that promised son, Isaac, has two sons, Jacob and Esau. And what ends up happening is there's a struggle between Jacob and Esau. And even though Jacob is the younger son, he ends up getting the birthright, the right of inheritance, and becomes the one who's going to carry on the family line and responsibility. The blessing's going to go from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. In fact, God, wanting to make sure this takes place, He humbles Jacob and changes His name to what? Israel. And so what happens, Israel's there. He, has, he ends up having 12 sons and some daughters, and they, have, they get married and they have sons and daughters. And so there's a time in history where there is now Israel is 75 people. And the 75 people, there's a problem. They're, one of their sons, of course, you know, at the, the, the end of the book of Genesis, one of their sons, Joseph, has been sold into slavery by his brothers. They told dad he was dead. They sold him into slavery. Joseph's in Egypt, and when a famine comes on the land, what happens? A long, beautiful story you can read in the last several chapters of Genesis, but what happens is God provides through the circumstances to make sure that not only is Egypt protected, but also Israel's protected, and Israel goes into, the 75 people that are Israel, go into Egypt. And that happens in about 1900 B.C. And so they're there for about 400 years. And they go from 75 people to some say anywhere from 2 to 3 million people. They grow as a nation. So they go from a family into a nation. But by the time they get to the end of that 400 years, are they privileged citizens of Egypt? No, they're slaves. They're treated horribly. And so they're crying out to their God, God, when are you going to deliver us? When are we going to be out of here? And so God sends a deliverer, Moses. And Moses leads the children of Israel 
in the exodus out of Israel into the promised land, or towards the promised land at least. And so basically we go from Israel getting into Egypt in about 1900 B.C. to the Exodus in about 1470 B.C. Then what happens, okay, some several hundred years later, you have Israel's first kings. You know, we have Saul and David, Absalom, okay, Solomon, I should say. We have these first kings, okay. And so when we have these first kings, we see God gives David this great promise. There's always going to be someone who reigns from your family on the throne. He gives him this kind of eternal promise that obviously has implications more than just for Israel, but for the promise that God had made to Abram. But after Solomon reigns, when Solomon actually, he does what David couldn't do. He actually builds a temple for God. What happens is his son causes a division in the kingdom, and Israel gets divided into two. That happens in about 931 B.C. And when there's two kingdoms, it splits this way. You have one kingdom that is basically the ten northern tribes that retains the name Israel. And then you have another kingdom that keeps Jerusalem as their capital, and it takes on the name of one of the tribes, Judah, of the two, they're just two southern nations. So that's how this thing divides. Now what you have there is, they're going on. You can read this stuff in Kings and Chronicles. They continue in their history. And what you see happening is, over and over again, the kings of Israel seem to get worse and worse and worse. Whereas the kings of Judah seem to go bad, bad, good, bad, bad, good, good, bad, bad, good. You know, on and off. Eventually what happens that the kings of Israel get so bad that the rebellion of God's people gets so bad that God allows the, Assyria, the nation of Assyria to invade Israel and take him into captivity in about 722 B.C. And that ends the, the northern kingdom. There's no more Israel. Those ten tribes are scattered. So Judah carries on for about maybe another hundred years, but then they continue to have an unrepented nation. Kings begin to be carnal as well. And so God says to them, and we're going to see this in just a minute, God says to them, look, you're going to go into captivity for 70 years. You too are going to go into captivity, and Jerusalem's going to be completely sacked. And so what happens? They go into captivity. Now, before they go into captivity, here's what happens. They hear this prophecy from Jeremiah. Some of you guys in your houses have this, probably this verse on a plaque or a, something in the, you keep in the, oh, your kitchen sink or something. Jeremiah 29, 11. Let's see the context of Jeremiah 29, 11. I'm going to give you several slides so you can read it on the screen. I'm going to read verses, 14 down to, uh, verses 4 down to verse 14, Jeremiah 29. Listen. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who were carried away in captivity, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Here's what he tells them. Build houses, dwell in them, Plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives, beget sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons and daughters to, for husbands, so that they may bear sons and daughters, and that you may increase there and not diminish. So he says, look, you're going to go into captivity for 70 years, and during that 70 years, I want you to continue to grow. I'm still working, so I want you to keep growing, keep expanding. And he says, do this, and seek the peace of the city, that's Babylon, where I have caused you to be carried, out, carried away captive, and pray to the Lord for the city. For in its peace you will have peace. For thus 
says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets or your diviners who are in the midst deceive you, nor listen to the dreams which they you caused to be dreamed, which you caused to be dreamed, for they prophesied falsely to you in my name. I have not said them, says the Lord. So he says, listen, okay, here's the deal. You're going to be in captivity for 70 years. Jerusalem's going to be sacked. You're going to be in Babylon. But I want you to continue to increase. I want you to pray for the city. You want the city to be blessed, and I want you to be prepared because there's going to be tons of false prophets during that time. Prophesying things like, hey, you know what? This really wasn't God's will that you suffer. You're really not supposed to be going through this. Or things like, hey, you know what? If you just believe you can take over Babylon, this is your chance. False prophets. So then he goes on to say, For thus says the Lord, After 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. That's where the promise fits. See, the promise that God gave through Jeremiah to his people, and, and, and you need to know this happened before they actually went into captivity. That the promise was, listen, you're going to go through a difficult time, 70 years. Anybody know why that number's significant? That's a lifetime. That's what we've been given, three score and ten. The average lifespan of a man. That's what you're going to get. If you're lucky, you get 80 years. That's the idea. A lifespan. He says, but I'm telling you, even though it's going to be a lifespan in captivity, I'm making you a great promise that I'm going to fulfill. He goes on. He says, then you will call upon me and you will go and pray to me and notice I will listen to you and you will seek me and find me when you search me with all your hearts. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you to a place from which I cause you to be carried away captive. This is really important because these promises that God's making, He's making to a people who are stubborn and rebellious and are being chastened by God. They're going into captivity. They're, they're going to be in Babylon because they're being chastened by God. And God goes, even though you're stiff-necked, even though you're rebellious, guess what? I'm going to do a good work in that lifetime. It's going to bring you back to myself. And I promise I will bring you back to this city. So what happens? Eventually the exiles begin to return to Jerusalem. Those that were in Babylon of Judah, begin to return to Jerusalem. First, the first batch goes under a guy named Zerubbabel. You can read in some of the, the minor prophets about him and how he takes him in, in five, about 536 B.C. Also, if you read the first six chapters of Ezra, you'd see the same thing. Then later on, Ezra himself takes a group to Jerusalem. Zerubbabel kind of rebuilds the temple. Ezra begins to reestablish temple worship, but also begins to rebuild the city. That was about uh, 457 B.C. Again, you can read Ezra chapter 7 for 10 to that. And then lastly, what we have here in the book of Nehemiah, especially in the first two chapters, Nehemiah begins to lead a group in about 536 B.C. 
Now, now I'm laying this all out for you so that you see Here's what you have, this pattern that you have. God calls a people that want nothing to do with Him. They go, okay, God, I want you. If you want me, I want you. They respond to God. That people wanders here or there, isn't always doing what they're supposed to do, but God remains faithful to the people He called. Over and over and over again, you see this pattern. And you see this going on with the nation of Israel. They're in this place where, that, okay, they have began to go back to Jerusalem, but things are a bit of a mess. In fact, it's important that we see in verses 2 and 3 that even though this is Jerusalem's story, that what this takes place is in the city of Jerusalem, this really is about how God makes a promise and keeps a promise to a people. That's what this is about. That He keeps His promises to us. In fact, let, let's talk about this, okay? You guys remember this, this, uh, this scripture, from 2 Chronicles. If you're reading our Bible reading plan, you probably read this this last week. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7, here's what it says. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon by night. Remember, Solomon was the one who God used to build the temple. The Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I have heard your prayers, and I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. So David wanted to build the temple. God says, well, I don't need a temple, but you know, okay, you're not going to actually build it. There's too much blood on your hands, but you're, I'll let your son build me a temple. That's fine. But then when Solomon builds the temple, Solomon rightly, humbly says, God, would you bless us with your presence? Would this be the place where if people turn here, they know this is where you're going to meet them. They can look at this place and know that you've made a promise to your people and you're going to meet them at this place. And when it happens, God not only sends His Holy Spirit, not only is His present manifest in this temple, but also, listen, He says clearly, I have chosen this place for myself. This is the house of sacrifice. And then he says, just two verses later, listen, another verse you guys might know well. He says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin and heal their land. This is why Jerusalem is so important in the Scriptures. It's so important because in Jerusalem is the temple. And at the temple is God saying, I chose this place so that my covenant people would look back at that place and say, if God has made a promise to meet us, this is where we know it's going to take place. Now we fast forward to, to New Testament, and let's be clear. The temple is not any longer Jerusalem, is it? No, that temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., Where's the temple? It's right here. Those who have put their faith in Christ are as individuals, temples of God's Holy Spirit. When we come together collectively, we collectively are the temple of God's Holy Spirit. Now, I do believe the temple is going to be rebuilt physically in Jerusalem. That's in a whole other Bible study. <laughs> but there's a reality here. Listen, there's a reality here that we need to see. There's a parallel here that we need to see. That even if the temple is in ruin, God still has a promise about the temple. Do you ever, do you ever look, don't, don't answer this because we don't want to discourage each other, but do you ever look at our church and kind of go, hmm? Do you ever look at your own Christian experience and kind of go, hmm? Not that great. It's kind of broken down. Do you ever feel that way? Because here's the reality. The reality is God makes a promise to us that is not about us building the temple so wonderfully. It's about Him 
saying, I choose to make myself known in this place. And I promise to bring restoration even when there's brokenness. See, this is about Jerusalem. This whole story will revolve around Jerusalem. And there's real historical things going on here that point forward to new historical things that will happen in the future. But they also apply to us right now. They're in a time here where God's city is in disrepair. But they're also in a time, according to verse 3, where God's people were disgraced. When Nehemiah asked his brother Hanani, when he asked him, hey, what's going on in Jerusalem? How's it going with the Jews that came out of exile that are there? He says, well, they're in great distress and reproach. They're, they're really not in a good place, to be honest. They don't look like what you'd expect God's covenant people to look like. They're feeling disgraced because the, one, the once great city where the creator of the universe made his presence known is in shambles. But not, not only that, listen, when he talks about, he kind of adds that, that the walls of Jerusalem are also broken down and its gates are burned with fire, you need to understand this. Walls broken down means a couple things. One, it means the fact that the enemy can come in easily. Because walls were about a defense. They kept the, the, those inside secure. So that's, that's part of the issue there. But more than that, all cities built walls around their cities. Every nation built walls around their great cities. And those walls were dedicated to their gods. And so a broken down wall was a way to say, our God isn't very strong. If an enemy could break down your walls, it was, a, it was a, a slide against your God. Your God's not very strong. So in a very real sense here, it's not just the fact that God's city's in disrepair and God's people are disgraced, but God's reputation is in danger among the nations. The nations whom God wanted to be blessed through Abraham, Isaac, Israel, and eventually Jesus, those nations are Tempted to think, ah, your God's known better than anybody else's God. Now, this is important because when it comes to God's reputation, we need to take that seriously. If we are Jesus followers, we need to take God's reputation, what, he, what, what people think of him through us, seriously. It's not, listen, it's not that we're seeking people's approval, not at all, but it is that we want to authentically represent God's character. Isn't this what Jesus calls us to? What did Jesus say in, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16? Jesus says, let your light so shine before men that they see your good works, and what do they do? Hey, you guys rock. No, they glorify your fathers in heaven. They say, what kind of God do you serve that you would serve others the way you do? What kind of God do you serve that you would be kind like this, even to your enemies? What kind of God do you serve that you would seek to love your neighbor, not hide from them? God's reputation, the kind of character that he has, is meant to be displayed through his people. And because the walls were broken down in Jerusalem, it wasn't being displayed. Because we, let the walls of our lives break down, what happens? People get the wrong idea about who God is. But this is why it's good news. <laughs> It's good news because it's not about us getting it right. It's about God's promise to make us right. It's about God's promise to see things restored. 
How does Nehemiah respond to this, right? He hears this bad news, man, the walls are broken down, God's people are in distress, it's not a good situation. And it says in verse 4, so it was, when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. Here's how you know God's doing a work in your heart. The first thing you notice is how broken the world is. If you're living in this world and you're going, things aren't right. Have you guys ever seen the movie? How many of you have seen the movie Matrix back from the 1990s? The movie The Matrix. Anybody seen that? You watch that heathen movies. Gosh, you guys are so bad. No, I actually own it. Full disclosure, yes. Okay, in The Matrix. There's a scene where the main guy, uh, uh, Morpheus, says to the other main guy, Neo, he says, you're bothered by something. It's like there's a splinter in your brain. Something's just niggling at you. There's something wrong with the world and you can't figure it out. If that's where you are, if you're in a place where you're going, something's wrong with this world. I think it's this, but then maybe it's not that. I think it's maybe this, and then no, maybe it's that. And You can't quite figure it out, but you know there's things that are wrong with the world and you're not sure what can be done to fix it. That is a good indication that God is working in your life because you're seeing that things are broken. But here's when you know that you know that you know that God's working in your life. When you see your own brokenness. When you see the brokenness in the world and you realize it's not just them out there, it's us. It's me. I'm broken. Something's wrong with me. Something's missing in my life. The things that I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. Something's wrong with me. That's when you know God's working in your life. If you're not broken over the state of your own life, over the state of this, this world, something's wrong. That wrongness is called a hardness of heart. We should be grieved over the state of us. We should be grieved about the injustice in our world. We should be grieved about how far we fall short, even from the own standards we set for ourselves. And i got to tell you, this is the place that we need to begin. Everybody wants to kind of go past this. Get past that. Yeah, yeah, okay. Bad news, okay, yeah, we're all sinners. Okay, John, I've heard this before. Get to the good news. I want to hear the good stuff. Well, you're not going to get the good stuff unless you actually believe the bad stuff. Unless, listen, unless you think there's a great, a great need for supernatural restoration, you know what you don't have? Any hope of restoration. I was listening to uh, the radio this week, and I can't remember what show it was on Saturday on Radio 4, but they were talking about these, just this, this time when they kind of just tell different stories from the community, and it was a, a woman who had had a bit of a rough life, and this, this group helped her, and she was doing better, and she was, she was saying, I, I have hope in humanity again. And I thought, man, I've heard that so many times. It doesn't last. Because the truth is we let each other down. We let ourselves down. We don't have what it takes to actually maintain, let alone restore what's broken in our world. We're messed up. And so when Nehemiah hears of God's chosen city in disrepair and God's chosen people disgraced and the walls down, meaning God's reputation in, in, in danger, he weeps. He's broken. He's broken. 
You know, one of the, the, the reasons that the church is weak in the West, we don't value this brokenness anymore. Even right now, I can sense the resistance to this. People are going, okay, yeah, I know that. Or kind of tell me something that helps. There's a resistance to this reality. But until we see this, we're not going to ever have hope. Until we recognize there's something wrong with us in the world, we're never going to find hope. Until we're broken over it. I know it's easy to see when bro- something bad's happened to you. You see the brokenness because you feel the injustice against yourself. That's easier. And then when you feel that, it's easy to go, I'm a victim. And where's God in this suffering? I'm a victim. And, and I want to be honest, I, I don't want to minimize that. You are. You have been sinned against. But what we need to see is that I'm a victim, but I'm also a perpetrator. I've suffered in a broken world, but I'm also part of the reason there's so much suffering in a broken world. You see, Nehemiah is not weeping as a victim. We'll see this next week when Adam talks about his prayer. He's weeping as someone who knows, Lord, we don't even deserve to be back in Jerusalem. We, We messed up. We should never be back restored. But we have mercy on us. We have mercy on us, Lord. Because we need to be in this place where we recognize that it, these are Nehemiah's tears. He's weeping and mourning, but this is God's heart. See, God's broken over our sin, He's broken over our brokenness. Not because he has any responsibility for it at all. He's only done good for those he's created. But he's broken because he longs to see us restored. We see this with Jesus as he mourns over Jerusalem in Matthew chapter 23, right? What do we see? Jesus has been trying to reach to the Jews, his own people. Jesus himself was Jewish. He's trying to reach to these guys. And when he talks about Jerusalem, he's talking about the Jews in general. But he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her, that is sent to her by God, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Now, let me ask you a really clear question. When you hear that or you read that, do you see someone going, stupid Jerusalem, whatever, you get what you deserve? Is that what you hear? No, I hear someone who knew this would happen and yet is broken over it. Oh, I wanted this, but you didn't. He's broken over their lack of seeing their own brokenness. And listen, those of us who are already Jesus followers, let's not think that we don't cause Sorrow to God's heart. Listen to this. Ephesians chapter 4, we can cause sorrow to God's heart as well. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. It says, And do do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember, He has identified you as His own, guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. 
If you look at Ephesians 4, if you remember when we just went through Ephesians 4 earlier in the year, what do you see? Before this verse is don't speak corrupt words. Don't speak evil of each other. Don't slander each other. Watch how you communicate. After this verse, it says, and also make sure that you're kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven you. In other words, how do you speak about and to other people? How do you respond when other people speak bad about you? Is there mercy and forgiveness flowing from your heart? Or is there bitterness? Because when we're speaking wrongly, and we're, or we're being spoken wrongly about, and we refuse to forgive, we are causing sorrow to the Holy Spirit. We're grieving the Holy Spirit. We're in the same boat as Jerusalem, and Jesus says to us, how I wanted to change your heart so that you could change your language, but you were unwilling. How, how I wanted to teach you how much you've been forgiving so, forgiven so that you could forgive, but you were unwilling. Don't you know that I've chosen you for myself? Don't you know that you're mine? Don't you know this is what I want to do? This is the restoration I want to do? A restoration of your heart? So Nehemiah is grieved over the state of Jerusalem, just the way Jesus was grieved over the hardness of the hearts of the Israelites. And we have to ask ourselves a question, what do our actions say about our heart towards God? Is God grieved by us? Are we quick to turn back to him and do what Nehemiah is going to do, pray for mercy. Because here's what Nehemiah does. Like Jesus, he mourns over the state of Jerusalem, but also like Jesus, he looks to the God of heaven. I love this because it says, it uses this phrase, God of heaven, very popular in Ezra and Nehemiah because the, 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 the way people, ancient people looked at, at God or gods was they were very localized. So if they were a community that was on the mountains, they would worship the God of the mountains. They had protection there. If they were a community that was in the valleys that were fertile, they, they worshiped the God of the, the valleys. If they were a prolific community, they had lots of kids, they'd worship the fertility gods. So, so basically, their God re would represent their location and their experience. But the God of heaven is above all that. He's above all that. He's not kept to a location or even a particular culture. He's bigger than that. And so when he says this, when he looks to the, or when he looks to the God of heaven, this is what Jesus does as well. For us, he looks to the God of heaven. Listen to this, John chapter 17. Some of my favorite verses in John 17. John 17, Jesus prays. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. I also pray for those who will believe in me through their message. When he's talking about them, he's talking about the apostles, those he chose, who would then preach the gospel, the truth about who Jesus is to people, and that truth would change people. Jesus is praying for those people who were changed by what the apostles taught. That's us. He says, I pray, listen, he says, Father, I want those, that's us, who you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory the glory which you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. Do you understand what he's praying for? He's saying, Lord, 
I want these people that will believe in the message that I gave to these apostles to be with me. Not just to be about me, but to be with me. I want them to know me the way you know me and I know you, Father. I want them to be restored to that. This perfect, glorious, loving relationship that's eternal and unbreakable. That's why Christ died. That's why Christ rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, sent his Holy Spirit. It was to restore us to that. That's what he wants for us. He's the one who makes it happen. Jesus is the one who makes it happen. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 says this, Therefore Jesus is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That means he's praying for them. Now, now understand, when Jesus is praying for us, he's not just making intercessions with his words. He's not just saying, Lord, would you help John? He's a bit of an idiot and he, you know, he does this or that. No, he's interceding for us with his wounds. For all eternity, the wounds, the scars in his wrists and his feet in his side testify that the price has already been paid for our restoration. So that as he was resurrected, we'll be resurrected. As he enjoys fellowship again with the Father, we will enjoy fellowship with the Father. This is the picture that we're going to get in Nehemiah. Now, usually, you know what churches do when they're teaching the book of Nehemiah? They're doing this because they have a building project. I'm not kidding. If you, if you look it up, Google book of Nehemiah, and all the little images will come up, arise and build. How God wants us to have a bigger building. Really? Nothing wrong with building projects, but that's not the point. The point is, God wants to just not restore a city. He wants to restore a people. He wants to restore hearts. And that restoration starts when we recognize our desperate need for it. We recognize how broken we are. Why don't we pray? Father, I pray that you would use this book to restore us. Lord, we long to be a city on a hill. We long to see your light shining in us and through us. But Lord, we confess our walls are broken down. We don't forgive the way we're supposed to. We don't love the way we're supposed to. Oh Lord, we need your forgiveness and we need that work of your spirit. I pray you do a work even right now as we're praying. Do a work in our hearts. I want you guys to keep an attitude of prayer. Your head's bowed and your eyes closed, please. No one looking around, just head bowed, eyes closed. If you're already a Jesus follower, pray. If you're not yet a Jesus follower, just listen. Nehemiah's name means the comfort of Yahweh. His father's name means the darkness of Yahweh. Who comes first, father or son? The darkness comes before the comfort. 
I want you to think about this. You, especially you who may be here today and wondering, okay, I'd love to have a fresh start, or I'd love to be restored. I just think things are so bad, or my heart is so hard, or I've gone so far. That verse I just read to you, Hebrews 7.25, that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. There was a, a famous American evangelist who said, Jesus is able to save to the guttermost. No matter how low you are. Trust me, if you hear my story, you'll go, Ooh, yeah, I guess God can save anybody. doesn't matter how low you are. He's able to bring restoration if you're willing to turn from your sin and put your faith in Jesus. You may feel like, you know what? I think I've done too much damage. Maybe you're in this church and you've been somebody who has slandered or gossiped other people in the church and you know it's caused damage. Now, I don't know any of this. This is not me trying to pick on anybody. I don't know of any salacious gossip or slander right now, thankfully. But maybe you've done that and you're like, oh no, oh no. Hey, God can restore you. We still want you here. Wherever you're at, you need to know that as great as Nehemiah is as, a, as an example to us, we know and serve someone greater still in Jesus. Jesus proves to us that the God of all comfort lives. Nehemiah just points to Jesus. Jesus shows us that all the promises of God are yes and amen. The promises of a restored Jerusalem just point to Jesus. It's Him you need to know. It's Him we need to trust. 